Um, today's reading is from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. Um, in your Q Bible, it's on page 1,105 to 1,157. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and the following of its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature object of wrath. But because, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we are dead in the transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised up raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by words, so that no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Thank you, Hong. So it's an exciting time to be a father when you have children the ages of four and three, because to them, everything is new. Uh, everything is exciting, even things that we just take for granted uh, that seem rather mundane to us and not really all that fascinating are incredibly fascinating to them. So, so for example, my, my daughter, she will frequently pick up some object and she'll say, Daddy, what, what is this for? What does this do? She'll pick up a, a tape measure. Daddy, what, what is this? What is it, what is it for? You know. She'll uh, pick up a carving knife. Daddy, and I'm like, whoa, what? sorry, my fault. <laughs> that should not be within your reach. But she'll pick up things and she'll ask, what is it for? Because she's learning that, that things have a purpose. The things are created with a purpose, that there are things that they are designed to do. And so one of the things we're going to see in this passage, one of the things we're going to look at, one of the things that we need to continually kind of draw ourselves back to and remind ourselves is, is what is our purpose? And, of course, that can be approached from a number of different angles. Uh, it can be expressed in a, a number of different ways. But that's one of the questions that we as Christians, I think, need to continually bring ourselves back to is what are we here for? What is, what is our purpose? Uh, today we're continuing in our series called The Story. Uh, it's a series that... Well, we started it about eight months ago or something like that, and then took a break, and now we're back in it. And the, the basic, the central thesis of this entire series is that if you want to understand the Bible, uh, you've, got to understand, you've got to understand any passage of the Bible, you've got to understand how it fits into the story, the overarching narrative of Scripture. 
that the Bible is not primarily a book of timeless wisdom. Uh, it contains all kinds of wisdom for sure, but to get at that wisdom in any given passage, you have to see how it fits into the overarching narrative of Scripture that, that actually at its most basic level, the Bible is a story. It's the story of, of all time and history. It's a story, and so if you want to understand any passage, you've got to see how it fits into that story, and it's a story that unfolds in these four acts, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation, God created everything good. He created us to be in fellowship with Him. He created us to be work with Him in the process of bringing greater beauty and order to all of creation. And that was a task that was given to us. Uh, and, and, but then, then the fall, right? We turned away from God. And we said, I think I'm going to try a, a different way. I, I'm not sure that I trust you, we said. And, and, and so I'm going to go my own way. And so we turned away from God. said, we really don't want anything to do with your way. And so God, then he said, okay, fine, go. You're out. Kicked them out. Because basically, when he kicks them out of the garden, they'd really already left. You know what I mean? They'd already left because they're like, we don't want this. So he's really just, he's just confirming what they had already shown him by disobeying. In fact, that's important because we come to this passage here, right? This passage at, at the beginning of it talks about the fall, talks about the state of the fall, that we were dead in our transgressions and sins and subject to the wrath of God. And, and again, the wrath of God is God saying, you don't want me? Fine. And we find this in, in, Romans, uh, in Romans chapter 1 and 2, when it talks about the wrath of God. You know, we, we think of this as some sort of vindictive God who's out to get us. But then you read Romans 1, and, and really, what, what does he do when he, when he pours out his wrath of God on, on, on people? He, he just hands them over to their way of life. That is judgment enough to simply be handed over to your way of life, handed over to a way of life that is apart from God. So that's the fall. That's the fall that we turned away from God and, and, and reaped the, uh, the consequences of turning away from God. Creation, fall, redemption. Redemption. God, from very early on, you, you, only, you only get 12 chapters into the book of Genesis, and God unleashes a plan of redemption because He loves us. And he wants to make things right. He wants to bring reconciliation. So he initiated a plan of redemption. He called a people, the people of Israel. And the Old Testament chronicles the story of the people of Israel. And to make a long story short, that that story comes to its climax, its conclusion in the person of Jesus, the Messiah, Israel's Messiah, Israel's king who represents Israel. He's their representative, but but also, in addition to being Israel's representative, he's the embodiment of God himself, the embodiment of all the promises of the Old Testament of God coming back. So it's, <clears throat> it's, he's the representative of Israel, and he's also the representative of God. And in that, he comes to accomplish what Israel had set out to do, and that was be the means through which redemption would come to the nations and come to the world. And, of course, that comes to its climax on Easter the cross, that on the cross, God himself absorbs the weight of our sin, takes it upon himself and says, this should be for you, but, but I love you and I don't want it to be for you. 
And so he takes it upon himself, and then, and then through the resurrection, you see, then this is what we're going to see this week and, and actually in the coming weeks, then in the resurrection, what we see is, is life coming back to humanity. That Jesus is the first fruits, we'll see in a couple weeks, of what God will do for all who put their faith in him. That, that, that just as Jesus was, was crucified and was dead, but now, because God took that upon himself, now Jesus, the representative of Israel and the representative of humanity, then is raised from the dead and is given new life in anticipation of what will come. And this, this leads then to this fourth phase, restoration, which we're now going to look at in the next few weeks. Restoration, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And what we're, what we're going to see, and we see this in this passage, and we'll see this in, in coming weeks, that this, this restoration uh, uh, phase really takes two phases. There's going to be two phases to it. Eh, you know, people will talk about all kinds of different phases. We get into the details, and people love to argue about all that. But, but really, there's two kind of two phases, really, that we need to see here. And that is that, in one sense, restoration has not yet happened. It has not yet happened. Because, again, what we're going to see, especially next week, is that Jesus' resurrection anticipates what God is going to do for all who put his trust in him. That as Jesus was physically, literally, and historically raised from the dead, that is what God is going to do for all of his people at the end of the age. Those who trust in him, they also. So so Jesus, you look at Jesus, what happened with Jesus? That's what's going to happen with all of God's people. We're going to see that as we come to that here in a couple of weeks. But obviously that has not yet happened, right? So that's, that's not yet. But there is also an already dimension to this. There is a sense in which already, already restoration has come. And that's what emerges in this passage. And, and here's, here's basically what it is. Already, here's what we see. In the same sense that Jesus was physically raised from the dead, we also are already raised spiritually. That just as Jesus was physically raised from the dead, we also, through faith in Him, are already spiritually raised from the dead. And that's in anticipation of, it's a... Earlier on in Ephesians, it talks about this as, a, as an inheritance, a down payment, an inheritance sort of reminding us of what is to come. So as Jesus was physically raised from the dead, we, through faith in Him, are spiritually raised from the dead. Or another way of saying that is that the same power that conquered the grave lives in me. We sang that chorus a number of times this morning, the same power that conquered the grave lives in me. Because basically that one line sums up what's going on here in Ephesians, the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2. The same power that conquered the grave, that raised Jesus from the dead, is available and is, is available for us through faith. That just as Jesus was physically raised from the dead, we are spiritually raised in anticipation of the day when God will renew and restore all things. Think about that. The very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us through faith. Through faith. The very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is available 
to us. Now, you know, what is faith, right? <clears throat> what is faith? Faith, faith is when you turn to God because you have nowhere else to turn. That's what faith is. Faith is when you turn to God because you realize you have nowhere else to turn. Faith is not just, as we like, I like to reiterate, it's not just mental assent. It's not just, I believe that Jesus died and rose from the grave. Faith, genuine biblical faith, is realizing that you have absolutely no hope apart from God. You have absolutely no hope apart from Jesus. It's that point when you come to complete desperation. And I've found this to be true in my own life. Those times when the Spirit is most at work in my life are those points when I'm at the greatest level of desperation. In fact, my wife said to me the other day, uh, she said to me the other day, she, she's home right now, uh, one of our kids is sick, so, so I can talk about her. But she knows I was going to say this. Uh, this is how I know my wife was made to be a pastor's wife. Okay, she was made to be a pastor's wife. Because she literally said to me the other day, she's like, you know, Kevin, I, you know, I kind of hope you, you reach another point of just spiritual just desperation. I hope you just get leveled. Uh, yeah, she said that she goes, because it's really cool to see what God does in you when that happens. I'm like, thanks. It reminded me, I think I've shared this story. I have a friend who's a, a cop who had heart surgery. And so he was out of, out of uh, work for, you know, many months. And finally, he was healthy enough to go back to work. And he was getting to go back to work on his first day. And he was nervous, right? He's nervous, like, is his heart going to hold up? And I was talking to his wife. And, and, and his wife, this is like, I'm like, this woman was made to be the wife of a cop. She literally says to me, she goes, yeah, I hope on his first day back, I hope he, you know, he goes into some bar and somebody jumps him and just punches him right in the chest. And he falls to the ground. And, and then he'll know his heart, it's okay, it's going to be all right. Like, you were meant to be the wife of a cop. And that, that my wife was meant to be the pastor's wife. She's telling me that she, I, I, great to see you at a point of just spiritual desperation because it's really cool to see what God does in you when that happens. Because it's in those, those times that when faith is exercised where it's, you have absolutely nowhere to turn. And, and that kind of faith, through that kind of faith, the very power that raised Jesus from the dead is available in us. Through faith, for the purpose of good works. I raised that question, what is our purpose? What is your purpose? What is my purpose? And in, in, in the big scheme, the grand scheme of things, I mean, we might all have individual courses that we're on, but in the grand scheme, what, what is our big purpose? And there are a lot of different ways, biblically, to unpack that. But what emerges in this passage is that we were made for good works. That's, what, that's how this ends, right? This whole passage ends, verse 10, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works. That, that, that's what we're saved for. I always, I always say this, that, that we're not just saved from something, we're saved for something. Sometimes I think we should get rid of the word conversion and just use the word calling. Nobody's converted that isn't called. That's what it is. It's a calling. It's, almost, it's primarily a calling that God works in you and transform you for a purpose. And we see in here that purpose is for good works. Right? So, so the very power that raised Jesus from the dead is, is through faith for the purpose of works uh, alive and available to us. So I want to just unpack for us 
Some implications. Of, well, what are some implications of this? And I'm going to give five implications that I think emerge here. Five implications of, of what this means that the Spirit is available through faith to produce good works in our lives. Five implications of this. Uh, the first one is this. Our good works are primarily the result of who we are and only secondarily something that we try to do. As a result of the Spirit's work in our lives, our good works are primarily a result of who we now are and only secondarily are they things that we try to do. Let me kind of, uh, well, let me, let me put it this way, in, in light of who we are. You see, what we, what we find in this passage is, is how the language of how the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now comes into us, and essentially we become one with Christ. Who we are, our identity, just who we are, I don't even know what words you use, and the kind of words that you use aren't even words to describe this, but you're just one, and we see this here, the language here in verse, uh, yeah, yeah, verse uh, 5. Beginning verse 4, because, he, uh, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. And then verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. I mean, you just see this language that we are with him, we are in him, we are one with him, that that's who we are through faith. And so what this means is that our good works are primarily the result of who we are and only secondarily something that we do. Let me give you an analogy of this, okay? Um, I love, it's been so exciting over the last several years to see a, a growing number of musicians become a part of the worship team and, and serving and all of this. And it's, it's, you know, I just love serving with them. They're so wonderful. And here's what I want you to know about all, I think I can speak on behalf of all of the musicians that you, you, you see up here. Is that, is that we, we do music, but primarily we are musicians. It's not just something we do. It's, it's, it's like who we are. There's a part of us. It's just who we are. I mean, there's this sense in which it, it doesn't matter, like, if you all told us, hey, we don't want you to do music anymore. You know, maybe, like, 15, 20 years from now, maybe the electric guitar will be outdated like the organ is now, you know, and maybe, maybe the organ will come back, maybe, like, that, wouldn't that be amazing? Like, everything just kind of comes around, and the organs are, that's like the cool thing to do is to have the organ, and that could happen, right? And so, 20 years from now, like, oh, here I am with my guitar, and everybody's like, get him out of here, you know? And, and, I mean, that could happen, right? But here's the point. If, 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 if you tell us to stop doing music, we're still going to do music. We are. I mean, in our car, in the shower, I mean, it's just, it's just who we are. It's who we are, and it's only secondarily something that we try to do. Now, of course, there is intentionality to it, right? I mean, you all probably don't even set your alarms Sunday morning, uh, but the, the music team, they do. I mean, there's some effort involved. There's some intentionality. They got to get here. They got to get here on time for rehearsal. And so there, there's some intentionality there where you've got to do it, but it's secondary. See, the same thing is true, that, that if the Spirit is at work in you, then your good works are primarily a matter of who you now are and only secondarily something that you, you try to do. Patience is something that you try to do, but it's just also something that you kind of are increasingly. 
Kindness is something you're intentional about doing, but it's something that it's just, it's kind of who you are and it flows out of you increasingly, increasingly. The first implication is that, that our good works are a result of, of who we are. And, and secondarily, and this is, <clears throat> this is closely related to it, secondarily, because good works are the result of the Spirit of God working through us, we cannot take credit for our good works. The credit all goes to God. We can't take credit for the, the work of the Spirit in our lives. You can't take credit for acts of kindness that you display to your wife or to your children or to your church. You can't take credit for this. You can't take credit for the patience that you, that you show to, to others. You, you, you can't take credit for it because it's, it's the Spirit that's doing it in and through you. And so let's look at it this way. If you find yourself from time to time kind of annoyed that, that maybe somebody isn't noticing your kindness, you're kind of getting irritated. They don't really seem to notice it. Then I would suggest to you that's not the work of the Spirit in your life. That's just you trying to be kind and getting frustrated when nobody notices. You see, if, if you're getting upset that nobody's noticing your kindness, I, I think that isn't, might not be the Spirit of God at work in you. Because if it's the Spirit that's at work in you, I mean, you, you, what you, one of the things you realize is that if they don't notice your kindness, it's not you they're ignoring. It's God. It's God that is, it's, they're ignoring God because it's God that's working through you. And, and similarly, I mean, if, 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 you, um, if, if, you, if you find yourself, like, just you know, longing for people to notice you and notice what you're doing, it's, it's not the spirit at work in you. I, I remember, um, oh, oh, also, so secondarily to this, when you receive criticism, if it really hurts you, if you're really hurt by criticism, then that's a sign that it's not the spirit that's at work in you either because, well, let me put it this way. And I think I've shared this before. One time there was an individual in our church who I asked them to serve in a ministry. And they said, this is what they said to me. They said, they said okay, that, I'm happy to serve. Uh, and then they said, you know, if, if down the road you or others in leadership come to the conclusion that maybe this isn't the right fit for me to do this, then just let me know and I'll step down. I'm like, who says that? I mean, who, who says that? This is a person who I think understands that, look, you know, not, not just the fruit of the Spirit is a result of the Spirit's work in me. The gifts of the Spirit are also a result of the Spirit's work in me. It, none of it's mine anyways, right? So if, if you determine that maybe my gifting doesn't fit this particular ministry and you tell me that, well, you know, either you're ignoring God, it's not, it's not on me, or maybe you're helping me to identify that that's not something that I'm not gifted in that particular area. But it's, this isn't about me. You're not attacking me. It's like, sorry. Sorry, I'm not good at that. It's, God, it's God's fault. I mean, I'm not the, this is God who gifts. Right? When the Spirit works in us, it's, it's, we're, we're not bothered by criticism. It's not ours. It's not, and, and when, we, when we are, you see, when we're really bothered by it, what's really going on is we, we want to take credit for something that's God's anyways. It's the Spirit of God, the very Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us to produce, to produce good works. And this means that the credit all goes to God. Secondly, secondly, the, 
the good works that we produce, and this is all, again, closely related, is the result of a changed heart. Good works are the result of a changed heart. And we see this uh, here in, in verse 3 when it talks about, actually talks about the old way, the old life, the life apart from God, what your life is like apart from the work of the Spirit in your life. And look how it describes it. It says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Notice this. It's, it's, primarily, it's primarily about our desires. It's about, let me put it this way. Another way of saying this is that sin, uh, sin with a capital S, is not primarily something that you do. It's a disposition of the heart. So sin, rightly understood, is disoriented desire. It's disoriented desire. It's when you want the wrong things. That's really what sin is. It's disoriented desire. Now, when your desires are disoriented, it's going to lead you to do things that we would call sins, those bad things. But those bad things, those aren't really the issue. The issue is that your heart is, is disoriented, and so it loves what it what is not right to love, and, and really at the heart of what we're talking about here is that the disoriented heart loves other things more than they love God. That's what sin is. Sin is when you love, you love, you desire, you long for something more than you long for and desire God. And then that leads you to act in, in, in certain ways. So it's primarily a matter of the heart. In fact, I, I would suggest to you that what's important about this is that it's, it's even more a matter of the heart than it is even a matter of the mind. It's a matter of what we desire, even more so than just what we think. One of the best books that I've read in the last year is a book by, by James K.A. Smith called You Are What You Love. You Are What You Love. And, and basically, he challenges, he, he teaches at, at Calvin college, a Christian university, so he's very interested in Christian education. What does that look like? What is it? And he talks about, he suggests that, that pretty much all of the modern world, including Christianity in the modern world, we've, we've bought into a modern understanding of the human person and neglected a truly biblical understanding of the human person. And what he's getting at is that we have bought into this modern understanding of the human person which in many respects comes from Descartes, who said, I think, therefore I am. So you are what you think. We're like brains on a stick. And so if, if you are what you think, then obviously change and discipleship is all about just changing the mind. You've got to change the mind because you are what you think. And what Smith is suggesting is that actually, no, 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 it's deeper than that, and that biblically... Actually, it's you, you are what you love. You are what you desire. There's something even deeper than that that actually guides you and, and leads you and motivates you. And, and, of course, I think we actually see this right in this passage. It mentions that our thoughts are off, right? Again, verse 3, all of us, uh, let me read it. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. It says thoughts. Thoughts. 
But notice that cravings and desires seem to be the focus here. It's, it's, it's what you love. It's what you love. That's really what you are. And so, so, so in other words, what we need to do here, and this is why everything in our church, our hope that all of our ministry is designed to shape the heart. Not just the mind. Yes, the mind too, but, but even more deeply the heart. Because it's heart that's going to bring change. Let me give you a practical example of this. You know, there's a famous verse that I memorized years ago, 2 Corinthians 10.5. It says, take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Okay, so we think of, you know, discipleship and, and spiritual maturity as taking captive every thought and making it obedient to Christ. Now, that's, that's good. That's true. But here's the thing. It's a whole lot easier to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ if you want to. If that's really where your heart is. I'll give you an example. Uh, Matthew 5, 28. Uh, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I remember reading a, a book years ago in a men's study about men's sexual temptation and all this. And, and it was talking about how, you know, men, we gotta, we've got to train our minds to just, you, you know, if you start thinking that thought, you just got to look away. Like if you see somebody that you're attracted to that you shouldn't be attracted to, just kind of look away. Bounce the eyes, right? The sort of discipline of training it. And I think that's really good, but you know what's going to make it a whole lot easier? It's if you really don't want to. Like the thought of having thoughts about somebody other than your spouse just is ugly to you. It's going to be much easier to take captive every thought if, if it's stemming out of what you love. And that's why everything that we do, we, we, seek to, we seek to, in the ministry of the church, to shape the heart. That's what we're after. And, and that's, why, that's why I think we, that's why things like music, I think, help, are important. That's why even we, we do things like Stations of the Cross, where you, you're able to, um, through artistic expression, able to encounter the reality of the gospel in a way that is more than just a matter of your mind, but somehow it, it, it can get in deeper. This is why even in our, in our discipleship, in our community groups, uh, it's, it's about studying the Bible, but it's also about just doing life together, being with people in the presence of people, because, because oftentimes this kind of heart transformation is more caught than taught. That's why discipleship can never be just a class. It's an entire environment in which we seek for the Lord to come and to work and to shape us. And, and one of the things, though, and I do want to say this, that, that we need to understand is that since it's a matter of, since spiritual formation is a matter of shaping the heart, one of the things we have to realize is that we can't force this on people. I mean, you think it's hard to change somebody's mind? Try trying to change their heart. It's hard enough trying to change their mind, but their heart. So, so parents, you, we got to understand this. You, you, can't, you can't force your kids to come to love Jesus. You might be able to force them to do good things for a while, change their behavior. That might work for a while, but it won't last. Right? But changing their heart, one of the things you've got to realize is that you can't, you, can't, you can't force it. You see, all that we can do as parents, as a church, church leaders, seeking to help shape the hearts of the people in our church, all we could do is try to create an environment, an environment that fosters, fosters the possibility of the Spirit coming and working in our hearts and bringing change. 
like to say it's a little bit like this. The church is a little bit like, well, if you think of the congregation, the church is, congregation is like a, a bag of microwave popcorn. And you get that bag of microwave popcorn, and the, the church and, and everything that we do, you know, all, all of the ministries that we do at the church are like the microwave. And so we're just trying to create an environment where those kernels can pop. And that's what we're after. We're after hearts that just pop for the Lord. We're not, we're not just talking about some sort of emotional experience here, right? We're not talking about that. We're talking about transformation, a, a change in the life and how we live our lives. Now, that, that will often be accompanied by a sort of emotional encounter, but it's not, we're not after emotion, right? We're after transform, transformation. So we're, our, our hope is that these kernels will pop. But I think we all know that you, you, put, you put the bag in there, and they, they don't all pop. They don't all pop. And the reality is the same thing is true in the church. Listen, you, you can have people who will go through their whole lives even going and being a part of church and involved in ministries and involved, and their hearts just never really pop. You can't force it. All we can do is create an environment. All we can do is create an environment that fosters conditions where the Spirit can come and work because ultimately then it's, it's a matter of changing the heart. Good works Good works is a result of a changed heart. Fourthly, good works are the result of God's kindness. Good works are the result of God's kindness. We see this here in uh, verse 7. Verse 6 and 7. Paul has just really long run-on sentences. They go on and on. In fact, in most translations, they put periods in there where they really wouldn't be there normally just to try to break him up because he just loves to ramble. Anyway, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show his, the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This grace that brings transformation is expressed in the kindness that comes from Jesus. And so... so what this, what this means is that the grace that transforms us, enables us to produce good works, is a result of God's kindness. So, let me put it this way. I want you to just think for a moment of somebody in your life who you find it very difficult to be kind to. Someone in your life that you find it difficult to be kind to, but here's the problem. Just because of life circumstances... You really, you really need to be kind to them. Maybe, uh, maybe it's your boss. And the reality is you can't afford to lose this job. This is a good job, you know, but your boss is just difficult. But what are you going to do, right? I mean, you just, you've got to be kind even though, you know, maybe he's very controlling and very condescending and doesn't treat you always the way that you should be treated, does not treat you with kindness. I mean, he does not deserve your kindness, right? He does not deserve for you to treat him that way. How are you going to treat him with kindness? Well, here's what it is. You treat him with kindness because you've come to realize that Jesus has treated you with kindness when you didn't deserve it. That Jesus has loved you despite the fact that you've turned away from him. You're, you're constantly turning away and ignoring him, and yet he loves you, and he comes after you, and he forgives you. 
Think of someone in your life who you find it very difficult to be patient with. But they just never, they're just, they're just doing the same things over and over and over and over again. And you're like, why, why am I doing this? Why am I wasting all of my effort showing such patience? you know why? Because Jesus is patient with you. You see, it's that kindness. It's the kindness of God that enables us to, to be patient and kind, good, gentle, faithful. Finally, fifth and finally, fifth, fifth implication of the Spirit working in our lives the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, is that if you put your faith in Jesus, your good works are inevitable. If you put your faith in Jesus, it is inevitable that you will produce good works. If you rest more and more in Jesus, it is inevitable that you will become more patient, and more kind, and more gentle. It's inevitable. It's not going to be perfect. You're going to have seasons of drought. There'll be times when it's perhaps not working quite the way. But, but if, you're, if your faith is in Jesus, then you're going to see that it is inevitable. <laughs> it's inevitable. And, and ultimately, actually, in the age to come, which we're going to come to in a couple of weeks, then you really will be. You need to know this, that whatever it is that you're struggling with, it's so easy for us to say, say, well, you know, with whatever struggle it is you have, you're like, well, that's just who I am. That's just who I am. And so you're like, well, you know, I'm Irish, so I'm just angry. That's just who I am, Right? And Jesus loves me, even though I am that way, and you're right, he does. But doesn't that kind of ease your anger a little bit? Jesus loves me, even though I'm angry. Yeah, doesn't that kind of make you a little less angry? And that's not who you are. We already see that's not who you are. The the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, you're now one with him. You're somebody totally, you're a new creation. That's not who you are. And when we put our faith in Jesus, it is inevitable that we will begin to produce kindness and faithfulness and gentleness. There's, a, uh, there's an app, an aging app, where you take a picture of yourself and it'll show you what you look like 25 years from now. Right? Like it just like shows you a picture of the future. And let, let, me, let me show you a picture of me. I'll show you. This is, uh, this is me. That's kind of weird. Boy, it already looks like 25 years from now. No. This is me now, okay? And this is me 25 years from now. Ready? I look tough, don't I? Man, my, my, uh, my daughter's husband better look out, man. You want to run into that guy? Uh, believe it or not, my wife even, she even wanted me to, here's my wife, right? Here's my wife. Here's the next one. Here's my wife. Here's my wife 25 years from now. Absolutely the most beautiful older woman in the world. Okay. Now, I want us to see this next slide. This is a picture of maybe you right now spiritually. 
Well, look at that one. That's you. And you look on there and you say, which, which of these characterizes you the most? Maybe it's all of them. Anxiety, fear, jealousy, selfishness, bitterness, rage. Spiritually, that may be where you are right now. But listen to me. If you rest in Jesus, if you put your faith in him, it is inevitable that you will look like, go to the next slide, you will look like this. It's inevitable. There will be ups and downs. There will be dry seasons. But that's, that's where we're all headed. When you walk out and you see the tree out there, that tree there is to remind you of where you're going, what you're headed towards. It's not there to condemn you. It's not there, oh, I'm not patient. I, I can't look at that tree. No, that's a picture of what you will be. If you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, that's what you will be. Because the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you to produce good works. Let's pray. Dear God, once again, we come before you, and Lord, I, I, we confess just the silliness of our thoughts and desires, the thoughts and desires that consume us on a daily and weekly basis. God, when you offer us just so much more, God, I, I, I pray for those here today, Lord, maybe those who maybe for the first time, are getting a glimpse of what the Bible is really about. Maybe they've been confused about what Christianity was all about. Maybe now they get a glimpse of just the incredible beauty, incredible goodness of who you are, God, and your great love for us. You love us so much that you... Not only do you, you love us in spite of our sin, but God, you, you, you love us so much that you desire to change us and to pull us out of it. God, I pray we would just be energized, Lord, to pursue you, to rely on you, to fall back on you, to rest in you. God, that we might begin to bear the fruit of the resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.